0: The prophet Habakkuk lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rise of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for them. Unlike the other prophets, he doesn't accuse Israel of sin and call them to repentance. Um, He is not speaking for God to Israel. Instead, his writings are a conversation with God. His words are addressed to God. This is the story of his personal struggle to believe that God is good when there is so much evil in the world. His are poems of lament. He draws God's attention to injustice and to suffering, and he does it in the form of complaint. It's very similar to some of the Psalms, and he's basically demanding. He demands that God do something here. The question at stake is not, how is one made righteous? We already know that. Repent, and don't you won't have to receive punishment. The question at stake is, how do the righteous face the success of evil in the world? And the answer to that question, we find in chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous live by faith. We keep faith in our hope that God has promised justice. We refuse to be moved from the idea that God is good, that God wants good and that God will eventually make sure that good is what is experienced. Um, Although Habakkuk struggles, he does eventually become a person who does just this, keeps their faith in God and lives by faith. We see that happen in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. As we jump into chapter 1, we have no biographical information here about Habakkuk. We're not given a city. We believe he probably wrote from the city of Jerusalem and was active sometime around 612 B.C. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back and forth between Habakkuk and God. This oracle is a vision um, rather than something that is heard. So rather than hearing the voice of God, he sees pictures of God, remember that prophets are very artistic in nature, and so this is his way of experiencing God's uh, revelation to him. The prophet raises two complaints, which we receive, um, which receive two responses from God. The first complaint comes in chapter one, verses two through four, and we get an answer in verses 11, 5 through 11. The second complaint comes in chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, and we get an answer in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2. Okay, so our first complaint is very similar to Psalm 13, 1 and 2. Habakkuk accuses God of not listening. Um, life in Israel is bad, God. Um, the Torah is neglected. It's resulting in violence and injustice. Um, it is all tolerated by the religious and the civil leaders because they too are corrupt. He cries out asking God to do something, yet nothing seems to change. It comes. He comes right up to the line of accusing God of being other than God has represented himself to be. And the prophet directs this prophetic voice toward God rather than to the people. Usually we see this challenge and harsh tone coming at us as we are called to repentance. In this case, the the prophet is actually shaking his fist at God. He seems to be calling God to repentance for failing to act as quickly as God should have. God responds in verses 5 through 11 Um, The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. He's rousing them to serve as his divine means of defeating wickedness. Um, He's aware of what's going on, and he's acting. I'm on it. Just because you don't see it or like it doesn't mean I'm not still handling the situation. And then we have complaint number two. Habakkuk has a problem with God's answer. Um, The Babylonians are even worse than we are. Like, how can you... Let them prosper and, and overrun us when they're even more. How can a good God use such corrupt people as your instrument? I mean, it's very indignant, and he indignantly demands an answer to, like, explain yourself. And he portrays himself as a watchman on a tower, like waiting, looking, and searching for an answer. Um, reminds me of how people on social media will, will say something. They'll say, prove it to me. Change my mind. Go ahead. I'll wait. I'll wait for your answer. Um, Babylon defies their own military power. They treat people like animals, like fish caught in a net. They devour nations and people groups to build their own empire, which is evil, corrupt, and idolatrous. Um, They make gods out of their military prowess. Like, they're so proud of that. They think they are beyond human. Um, and so God answers this complaint as well. Um, he tells Habakkuk to get out tablets and chisel this response down because this is serious and enduring. So listen up. This is important. And so he receives a vision about an appointed time in the future that God may seem slow in bringing this about. It may seem slow in coming, but it will come. The wicked are proud. They trust in themselves. Wealth is... Um, in verse five is sometimes when rendered wine in some of the manuscripts, but wine is something you can only purchase if you have money. The righteous, by contrast, continue to trust in God. Cross-reference this with verse four and with Romans 1:17. Violence and oppression creates a never-ending cycle of revenge that causes nations to rise and fall. God is going to use those rise and fall. But he doesn't endorse all that they do. They, too, will be accountable to God's justice. In verses 6 through 20, the prophetic vision is elaborated um, through five woes or five curses in which the self-serving life of the wicked and the proud have their ways turned upon them. They receive logical consequences. Um, the word alas is used to mark each of these woes um, in verse 6b, 9, 12, 15, and 19. The first two target unjust economic practices. Um, they're charging ridiculous interest that keep the poor poor, and they build their wealth by cheating through crooked means. Uh, in verse 11, plaster or beams, these would be wooden elements that are mudded over and um, could possibly be stone, more likely to be some form of wood. Um, e- even your houses are built crooked <laughs> in there. So it's it's pervasiveness of this crookedness to all of their, the way their economic system has been structured. The third curse or woe is about slave labor, Um the conquered people are never seen as human they're only seen for what they can produce their work to death and then cast aside uh, cross reference this with chapter 2 verse 14 and or i'm sorry let me try that again cross reference verse 14 of chapter 2 here with Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 through 30 your building efforts will not endure god's glory is what endures um you will not take over the whole world with with your evil and your corruption. God will. The fourth curse or woe is about the irresponsibility of leaders. They get drunk and party. Um, this is a highly sexualized um, portrait here of what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> they're partying and living in unjust and corrupt ways while people are hungry and they suffer. Um This is the sign of a people who have hardened themselves against God when the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the rich don't care about the suffering of the poor. The fifth curse or woe, idolatry, um, is the driving force here. Money, power, national security have become their gods. Um, Not just carved idols, but anything to which they look for security and trust more than they do God becomes idolatry. Verse 20 here is a great verse. Just wait. Just you wait. You think God is too weak to do anything, but you're going to be silenced. God is not powerless. God is just patient. Um, take a look at how this relates to 2 Peter 3, 9. And in chapter 3, chapter 3 is a prayer or a psalm, a song. Um, take a special look at the last word or phrase of it. Shiganath. Shigana Uh, S-H-I-G-I-O-N-O-T-H. It's a transliteration and an unclear word. It appears only here and in Psalm 7 in the Bible. Uh, There's a very similar theme in Psalm 7. The consensus of scholars seem to say, with strong emotion and impassioned triumph. So, we can have the coexisting of lament and grief as well as celebration of victory, so we can at the same time be heartbroken and joyful. We can lament what is happening and remain confident of God's ultimate victory. Um, there are three words for in Hebrew for songs, psalms, and prophecies. There are hillel which are praise or joyous songs. There's Salah, which means to pause and think about this. And then there's shigyanath this word here, which indicates strong emotion and lament. Um, we see the word Salah, pause and think about this, in verse 3, 9, and 13. Um, in verse 2, God acts, um, be who you are, show everyone who you are, um, in verses 3 through 15, God's appearance in the Sinai Desert is given here. It's a mixture of creative acts and natural disasters, Noah's flood, the Exodus event, including the plagues and the Red, crossing of the Red Sea are all alluded to. Um, and it's basically, do again what you have done before. Redeem us, purify us. Do to Babylon and Assyria now what you did to Egypt back then. So the whole song is um, a prayer, an, an admonition to God to come and act as God has acted in the past. Verse 16, yet all of this is scary. It's scary what could happen if God doesn't intervene, and it's scary what's going to happen when he does. There is rottenness in the bones. It says the whole system is corrupt. The whole thing is um, diseased and unhealthy. Um, And this, even the steps tremble. The stomach being weak in the knees, like find it hard to walk because there's rottenness in the bones. Um, It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. But um, the prophet says, I will trust that it will not be forever. I'm going to wait. I'm going to be quiet and hopeful and trust in God. The past encourages the prophet to trust God for the future. Those times we've seen God show up, we've seen God at work become things we latch onto and hope that knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God has been justice and righteousness in the past, as well as love, God is love, justice, and righteousness in the future. All of this um, goes unnoticed by the oppressors. Um, Live a quiet life. Pray for peace. Obey the authorities to the extent that you can and wait for God to be our avenger. In verses 17 through 19, they're not presently seeing the fruit of their faith. At this particular moment in time, during this particular stage of life, they are choosing God's presence over God's presence. So they're going to stay with God and stay in the presence of God, even when they're not seeing a nice easy life coming from that because others have made other choices and those choices are getting on them. But they're going to choose to remain in relationship with God, even when appearances could cause doubt that God is being faithful to them. They're going to choose to believe in God, but they're going to choose to be like God is to us. God remains faithful when we're not. So they're going to choose to remain faithful. Verse 19, hinds feet on high places is the way the King James Version translates this. Um, it's about the feet of the deer on the mountainside. They, they are sure-footed even when there's very little to stand on. That's what faith does for us. That's what staying connected to God does is give us the ability to be confident, to move um, sure-footedly even when there seems to be very little to put our feet on. We live by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us. The message here is to wait, that God will ultimately act. We don't always see the results, but Habakkuk will not live to see the resolution for which he prays, hopes, and strives. He's not going to see this that he's hoping for and having faith for. We will work for the kingdom even when he doesn't see it. So will we? Will we work for the kingdom of God even when we're not seeing it come to fruition? Will we remain faithful? Are we willing to sow seeds even if we're not going to reap the results of them? Or are we only interested in God for what's in it for us? Are we only interested in a relationship with God when it brings us comfort? Or are we willing to be all in for God? That is the little prophetic book of Habakkuk.